Welcome to Calling Cards Podcast. I'm Lydia. And I'm Taylor. And this is a podcast about the Bridgerton series of Regency Romances by Julia Quinn. And today we are talking about da, 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 an offer from a gentleman. So get your masks on, both your COVID approved and your masquerade <laughs> masks, because <laughs> that's right. We are completely on theme today. <laughs> Woohoo! Yes, we are. Yeah, I love this yeah. book so much. Tay. I love this I love book, this book so, so much. I just like reading. It, I'm like, oh yeah, like I I almost know this by heart. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just so good. I for I'm Ugh. I'm forgetting large chunks of these books. Like again, mm. I've read them so many times, and I just yeah. going back and rereading them now. I'm like, oh my god, I forgot that was a thing. Oh my god, yeah. I forgot this was a thing. Oh my gosh, yeah. But I love it so much. I almost, I mean, I almost hate to say it. I almost hate to say it, oh. but I'm going to say it. I think I love Sophie more than Kate. <laughs> oh, I do. I So the reason why I was so familiar with this book is because this book in number four, I basically like reread every year and I fiercely love Kate, but I just, I just love Sophie and, and Benedict so much. Like there's something about Sophie that she's just like so, like there's just this like dry humor that's completely different from Kate's sarcasm. It's like a lot gentler, mm -hmm. but like very ironic. And she's like willing to keep her humor to herself mostly, but like it's there and it never leaves. And I just, I just love Sophie so much. Yeah. It's she's so one great. of my favorite characters of all books. She is. Well, and then, and then I, I do think this yeah. is the first Bridgerton book I read. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't read them in order, and I'm fairly certain this is the first one I read. Because, yeah, my friend, after reading Oceans of Fire mm -hmm. by Christine Feehan, my friend handed me and said, oh, I think you'll like this one as well. It's a Cinderella-type yeah. story, and that's what got me started. And I think there was, like, I think she had, like, the old, like, hard-backed copy of this book what? that had, like, a big picture of Sophie and Benedict in the front cover. Is it? Is it this picture? It is that picture. It's such a and beautiful picture. I love picture. it so much. It's so gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Ugh. So um, enjoy that in this uh, audio uh, me medium, everyone. <laughs> uh, that picture is posted on our social media, on That's Instagram right. and Twitter and on the Facebook. So, so check it out. Go ahead and check it out. It's a gorgeous picture of these two. Although I think that picture is actually from like the epilogue. <laughs> no, no, no. She's wearing the green dress. It's totally from the the part one of this book. I thought right? her dress was silver. No, her dress oh, is silver. Oh, nuts. You're right. Uh, whatever. She's also not wearing a mask. Yeah. Okay. So I'm completely wrong. And he wrong. also, he ain't got no shirt or he, he's got you know a beard. He's not you know properly yeah, dressed. That would never matter in a romance cover. And you know that. Regardless know that. of the fact that I am entirely I wrong, that part is not off. <laughs> um, I want to like rewind it slightly. So we had just been talking the other day um, when you so graciously 
brought me into your picnic that uh, that this might be the the book to start on the series if you're not a romance reader. If you want to get into the Bridgertons and you're not necessarily a romance reader, that offer from a gentleman might be the right one to start. And I I think so. I I agree with that. I I think so. I think part of the reason I really liked this book is mm-hmm. that I remember reading it and being like, this is so similar to the movie Ever After, I, which was I one of my favorite movies that. in high school. I don't know why, but I knew you were going to say that. Not right oh. now, but like when I was reading the book, I was like, the, uh, Lydia's going to mention. Because yeah, there's something about it does really. Oh, like the description of Araminta yeah. in this book is not who I'm imagining. I am imagining Angelica Houston. <laughs> who is so brilliant and who i love so much Mm -hmm. and then like posy i am picturing the woman that plays jacqueline in ever after and then same thing with rosamund like that those are the three that i picture i do not picture drew barrymore (laughs) no okay yeah but i do picture the step family as they are in ever after in this book like that's just how my brain works yeah and also like the step, I mean, Araminta's not, Araminta's, I think, is worse than the stepmother in Ever After. I think she's I mean, just both, about the worst. They're both pretty heinous, but, like, you can, like, get some humor out of, mm-hmm. I don't remember her character, I don't remember the character's name in Ever After, but you can get some humor out of this. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no humor with Araminta, mm-hmm. bitch. She's quite so. one of the worst step uh, stepmoms in any Cinderella retelling that I've ever read. We should probably go back to talking about the book. Yeah. All right. So let's. I wanted to say that reading this, and it's gonna ugh, sound like the most obvious thing, but this is the most romantic book in the Bridgerton series. Frankly, the most romantic book I've ever read by Julia Quinn. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know if I would agree with that. What do you think would top this for you? Is it one of her earlier know. books or I don't know. I don't feel like I'm qualified enough to read to to make that assumption. Okay. I mean, it's I obviously get what you're of books you've read. Yeah, I know. Qualifying. But I now I'm thinking like which Julia Quinn book have I read? Yeah. I've read so many of them. Um I don't hmm. I would say that you could be right. Well, I mean it's it's a subjective thing. But it like, is a subjective but thing. Like, here's the thing. So it's it has such a different tone than her other books. This book yes. is very, very funny, but like she does humor so well that that is ten like smart humor to me is like a hallmark of Julia Quinn. And yes. it, adding family to the mix, I would say those like smart humor, good writing, and family are like the hallmarks of Julia Quinn. This while it is funny is so deeply romantic and it makes like romance this like magical thing and we'll all get more into this like later i guess but like yeah it's just it's, it's got the magic and the candlelight and the mystery and the like very much traditional like fairy tale romance in a way that i don't think anything else that she's done has and in a way that i think she pulls off incredibly well which to me is why this book is so special it's part of why this book is so special. I mean, the characters are huge. I would I would agree with that. I it is a it is a magical book. I do agree with that. It is different. Benedict is mm-hmm. is very different from his brothers. Yeah, which I like. Which I I, I do that. like that. And I I would say that he's easily the most romantic, as well. Like yes. I mean, but any of his his brothers would have said that too. Like it's not he's like the sensitive soul, yeah. but like he's very romantic. And even in the next book, there's this like line of like. Benedict's weird 
of like how he falls in love, which I love. We'll get to it then. But like, I just like, well, Benedict fell in love at first sight. Yeah, Benedict's a weirdo. Okay. <laughs> He's not like the kind of romantic that was walking around like looking for true love, like reciting poetry. He's just was sort of quietly deep in his soul. Like when he saw Sophie, that sort of romanticism in him came out. But it wasn't something that was like part of his personality just to be part of it. You know, he's not one of those characters who just like craves it and just finds it in everyone he sees. I think that I think that that's a good way to describe. I think in that regard, mm-hmm. Benedict is very much like his father. We don't get tons and tons of snapshots of his father. Yeah. We don't. But Mm-hmm. in the second epilogue and again we'll talk about this when we read those yeah. but it is something to be said for you've kind of get this hint that edmund bridgerton loved violet from the mm-hmm. time he was like 12 years old and she threw flower at him oh like it's this very sweet moment when you realize that it it's very likely that edmund did have a thing for violet ever since then that's so funny because in this book, Violet says it was basically love at first sight. Like I saw him in a ballroom and the first, like the moment he we spoke, I knew. So that's the other thing you can tell that she went back and maybe retconned that a little yeah, bit. Oh, for sure. And that's when, I, but I do think that when he, he fell in love with her maybe first sight when he was a child. And so it's a very, it's a very sweet moment. And then when they do meet as adults, again, he does kind of like catch her eye and she's like, I wonder who that is. And he's like, I'm Edmund Bridgerton. And she's like, oh yes, I threw a pie on you. <laughs> cute it's super adorable and i love it so much yeah so yeah so i i have to say i mean okay the next book aside and its characters these are my favorites like aside from the next book because that's the ultimate but like benedict is my favorite of the guys of the like like hero love interest in this book again aside from book four yeah i'm curious what your thing is i don't remember what my list is (laughs) No, no, but like not not favorite book that we talked about before, but like like favorite hero and heroine. Like you said that you like Sophie more than Kate. Like so for me, I, again, oh, yeah. the next one aside, Sophie's my favorite, but also the next one aside, Benedict's my favorite. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. I'm trying I do like I Michael, I guess. See, I I like Michael. Yeah. And I do actually really like Gareth. Yes. He was when I was talking about how romantic Benedict is, I was for some reason kind of thinking about Gareth. Like in a like in a different way, but like mm-hmm. he has this like kind of quiet I mean, we'll get there, but I do like him. We will. I think I'll have to go back and rate them as I read them because okay. I, I like I don't want to make that statement yeah. in this episode yeah. and then like two episodes later be like, just kidding. That's Ultimately, fair. we both know that yes. out of this whole series, yes. Colin and Penelope are my two faves. And mine as well. And yours as well. But to me, it's like this book that we're reading is so special to me. It's just that the next book is for both of us like a special kind of special. Like it's like on it's it's on a plane all of its own. Like Julia Quinn is such a good writer. So her her stuff is kind of on a level of its own. Then the Bridgertons stand out in her writing on a level of their own. And then for me, this book is like the best out of that because like book four, next book is like, again, on like two levels above that because it's just so special it's like my favorite it's so good and i know it's really special to you it is and i do really enjoy this one like i said i took so many notes i can't say i took as many notes during this one as i have the other two yeah i was just like well what if we just show up and like read the whole book out loud (laughs) because it's so quotable it is quotable speaking of quotes yes ma'am lines ah 
such a good this is like a really awkward transition no no that was good i was so impressed we needed you needed to get us out of that all right so lydia your most bonkers out of context line for this book all right here it is you promised hyacinth you would help her with her arithmetic eloise blurted out she hasn't seen hide nor hair of you in two weeks it's not as if she has a school to flunk out of benedict muttered Benedict, what a terrible thing to say, Eloise exclaimed. I know, he groaned, hoping to stave off a lecture. Just because we of the female gender are not allowed to study at places like Eton and Cambridge doesn't mean our educations are any less precious, Eloise ranted, completely ignoring her brother's weak. I know. Furthermore, she carried on. (laughs) I could read that. It it goes on and on and on. And it is so wonderful. And it's just... It's good. All right, so because you read a few lines, I'm going to read a few lines, too, because guess what? We make the rules, and we get to break them. All right. Exactly. (laughs) The poor thing can't carry a tray and keep her breeches up at the same time, she replied, clucking sympathetically. Uh, Ellipses. Someone get the bloody girl a belt, Benedict yelled grumpily. It didn't seem quite fair that everyone got to go out to the hall and watch the sideshow while he was stuck in bed. (laughs) All right, you go. It's so great. (laughs) It's okay. Okay, so here's the other thing that I love about this book. Okay. We get introduced to the younger Bridgerton girls. Yes, absolutely. And it is riotous. It is so wonderful. Like, this is this is an, one thing that I do like about this book is we get the family. We At this point now, with the exception of Gregory, we, we've met all the family. Well, we did meet Gregory in book one, but he did not leave a lasting impression. He's not very important. He's so young, though. Like, Yeah. But yes, this is the first time really meeting all the other ones. It was like Francesca was there. Maybe Eloise got a line to say, but she was not very – she had no personality. Hyacinth got a little bit of her personality because she was, like, throwing things, but not really. So this is the first time we get to see these three, like, really get to, like, have their own personality in this book. And we see, like, yeah, we get to see Eloise, we get Francesca. This is, I think this is the most that we get Francesca in any of the books besides her own. Yes, I agree. We don't really get her, which is so, I think is so kind of sad. For us. (laughs) For us. She does have this wonderful sly humor. It serves to make her book the most, I would say, the most self-contained of any of the books. The most isolated, which is really interesting. I don't think any of her siblings show up in her book from that I can remember. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I can't think of anything. I think Violet shows up in her book, but I don't think any of her siblings do. I could be wrong about that. That book is, I think, the most unique of the series or the the one that, that uh, is more the most different from the others. That's what I meant to say. Yes. And yes. it's also an extremely different kind of book for a romance novel, but we will talk about that in a couple books. <laughs> So, so but the point is books from now. that this is as much as you're going to get Francesca interacting with her siblings in the Bridgerton. Yes. And it yes. is nice. Like it does. It leaves you wanting more, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. I, I really wish at some point she'd just sit down and like write. I really want a Paul Mall game between all eight siblings. That's mm-hmm. just really what I want. Yeah. So JQ, if you ever, ever, ever feel the need or somehow manage to hear an episode of this and you're like. I'm going to listen to this because people are, like, talking about it. And you don't think we're too, like, ridiculous. <laughs> that Paul Mall game between all eight siblings. Oh, I want it so bad. I have the dreams in my head. Oh, that's the other it. thing. What? There is a line in here where I literally, in my notes, wrote, and this is why I think Eloise is the one who bludgeoned somebody over the head with a Paul Mall mat. I firmly believe it's Eloise. Why did you think that? I don't 
know. I well, I need to find the um. All right. Well, you look for that. I'm gonna say, uh, I, I think we'll. I mean, we'll we'll get a chance to see Francesca interacting in the series, which will be cool. When I was reading this, I was. I know I've said this before, but I I mean it. I think the most this time that I was really looking forward to seeing this played out. Because I was even, like, picturing it in my head more cinematically than usual. Like, there's a scene where, like, the scene where Sophie is outside and she sees Posey and she sees Araminta and she's, like, plastered against the wall. And then Benedict comes down and opens the door and sees her. Like, I pictured that in my mind of, like, how well that medium will be able to switch between their perspectives and really ramp up our tension as readers, like, while the different things are happening and the, like, chaos of his mother and sisters and then her own sort of turmoil is hot anyway i'm really looking forward to it and just yeah like seeing the masquerade will be really visually stunning um and then like seeing benedict and sophie kind of like amiably bicker as they're going to my cottage and then like at the lake and like all of that is gonna be really fun yeah it is okay i found it i found why Lydia. she sat up straight we have a new maid nobody told me about it Heavens, he drawled, something has happened and Eloise doesn't know about it. She leaned back in her chair, then kicked his foot again. Housemaid, ladies maid, scullery, why do you care? It's always good to know what's what. Ladies maid, I believe. But yeah, in this scene, amongst this scene, she like, like verb, like it just like abuses him a couple of times, like kicks his feet constantly. Is like, mother will kill you if your feet were on the table. And he's like, well, mom's not here right now. And so like, she's constantly like smacking him and everything. Mm -hmm. I think Eloise has little patience sometimes for her brothers, especially when they're being like purposely obstinate. Here we go. He says, have I mentioned that I'm considering investing in a company that manufactures human-sized muzzles? She threw a pillow at him. Oh, and then here, uh, why why am I allowing myself to be insulted by my ninny hammer of a younger sister? Probably because I do it so well. She kicked at his foot, trying to knock it off the table. Mother will be here any second, I'm sure. Yeah, that's good. It's very this good. This scene is just so great. And then we also start to realize that Eloise is kind of nosy. <laughs> Yeah, very nosy. And I love it. I yeah. love it. This is th- this is one where wholeheartedly Violet and Eloise are scheming and matchmaking for Benedict, yes. which is very sort of surprising, not surprising, not surprising in their characters, surprising in who they're matchmaking him with. Yes. Um, and it's quite endearing. And it's really funny because he's very suspicious, but he hasn't he's not smart enough to figure it out. This is the book of amateur detectives because... Ooh, Jumpy head. So this should we talk about tropes? Yeah, I know it's jumpy head, but yeah. no, I oh well, no, there was something that I want to talk about. Something. Do you want to talk about the setting of this book? That would be smarter at the beginning, I guess. <laughs> A couple of little notes about what is going on in England at this time. This is actually kind of like A boring couple of years. So we start in 1815, mm-hmm. which is part where one. part one is in 1815, and then we jump ahead two years to 1817. Mm-hmm. And um, I think she meant to end him in 1817 because that's the year that Jane Austen died. Oh, so she starts with the year that Pride and Prejudice is published and ends in the year Jane Austen dies. Yeah. So nice. uh, during these t- couple years, um, Emma is published and Persuasion and Northanger Abbey are both published as well. So all wow. three of those are published wow. within the couple years. And then uh, the British are still fighting the War of 1812 here in the states and then uh the napoleonic wars have ended as well mm-hmm. so basically britain is nursing its wounds and licking mm-hmm. its 
feet. Yeah, not. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, they won the Napoleonic Wars, but they have. Feet. You got me licking their feet. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. they're licking their feet. Licking they're their licking their feet. <laughs> uh, um, but you wouldn't see any of that in the in, in these novels. Um. No, uh, I the the show Belgravia does actually tackle some of like the war stuff, but it is such a soap opera. Oh my gosh! Okay, <clears throat> wow. Um, but it's a pretty quiet time in England right now, is what I'm trying to say. It's okay, like, the wars yeah. have ended. Okay, it's pretty like nothing super like exemplary happens in the years between you yes. know eighteen fifteen eighteen seventeen. Yeah. Except for Jane Austen dies, and then her brother's like, actually, guys, we got to publish her name on the books now. Because well, at that point, she had only been published as uh, as a lady, as a lady. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So it's it's a it's a period of of rel- I mean, despite the Napoleonic Wars, it's a period of relative peace and stability. Um. And despite the fact that they have a mad king, yeah, they're they're pretty prosperous. At least these folks are. So this book, eighteen fifteen to eighteen seventeen, it takes place in London and Wiltshire, which is east in England, and uh. Yeah, we get a little bit of a little bit of the country again, which is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. Um, oh yes, um, unsung heroes of this book: Colin Bridgerton, Lady Vi, and Eloise. I agree. I completely agree. The thing that I've realized in these books, I think it's really interesting, given what we know about book four, that Colin is kind of all like at the end of the book in each of these books, kind of is the voice of reason with his siblings. Kind of. The very needling, annoying, puckish voice of reason. reason. Yeah, he's he is Puck. And it's wonderful and glorious. And it's really fun to see how he did get, because, again, if, like, you could easily see how this story would could have ended at the end of this, yeah. done, yeah, no more trilogy. Bridgertons. Yeah. And we know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But it's it's brilliant and it, oh it's so hard to like not talk about the next book. I know so they, much. They so she sows the seeds so well and so thoroughly in this book. It's like I I was kind of thinking like we we'll need to actually talk about a little bit about at least the characters in the next book because there's such so much laid out in this one. Either that or talk about it next time because just yeah. I the, think we're, we're gonna have to talk about it both times. Like yeah. we're, we're gonna have to talk about Agreed. them. Yeah. From the different perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're definitely intrigued. And it's it's going to be so fun to watch Colin sort of then have the tables turned on him in the next one because he's just so smug. He's just so in all these books. It's like, of course, you're in love. Of course, this and that. You idiot. Like, <laughs> you don't know how to deal with women. And as Benedict points out in this book, uh, well, Colin, if I was going to go to anyone for advice about women, it wasn't going to be you. <laughs> We'll, right. we'll get to that. Uh. We will. But, um, okay, so then before we talk like about more about the plot, we need to talk about Lady Whistledown and the way that yes. Lady Whistledown does the narrative in this book because yes, it is absolutely. so brilliant. It is. Oh, it is so good. Oh, I just, in this book especially, given what I yeah. know of what's coming, yeah. it just is even more poignant. Yes. I think for me anyway. Yeah. There's a lot of setup. There's a lot of foreshadowing for the next book. and And yet at the yeah. same time, it's, Whistledown is doing so much for this book. Um, at, at the beginning of this book, Whistledown really grounds, I think grounds us sort of uh, with a tone because at the beginning, at first it's sort of like a little bit a little bit depressing maybe with how Sophie's treated. Like 
picture sad Cinderella sweeping up ashes kind of that and then it goes into this like it immediately goes into this beautiful like romantic fairy tale and while that's happening Lady Whistledown is really grounding us in like humor in snarkiness in context in exposition and then in part two the book itself or the text itself is a little bit more grounded and Whistledown is like laying all these things that are going to come into play at the end of this book in the middle of this book and of course very much in the next book we know that she talks about the Bridgertons a ton. She talks about the Featheringtons a ton. She barely ever says anything bad about the Bridgertons. She barely ever says anything good about the Featheringtons. She seems to be places where she shouldn't be and know things that she shouldn't quicker than she should. Yes. We're, I like, I have several, I'm looking for it in my notes. Here's, here's one of my favorites that is in this book. Uh, it's the beginning of chapter 12. Speculation continues to abound concerning the disappearance of Benedict Bridgerton. According to Eloise Bridgerton, who has, who as his sister ought to know, he was due back in town several days ago. But as Eloise must be for the, must be the first to admit, a man of Mr. Bridgerton's age and stature need hardly report where his whereabouts to his younger sister. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Mm-hmm. And then the shade i mean the 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 lady whistledown shade in this book i mean like it's good in the other books but but it is is slamming so on point like Mm -hmm. this is like prime lady whistledown yeah this is no holds barred and and yeah it's it's so biting and i think to me this is like between the two main characters this is a lot gentler than a lot of the other books that like when they're at their peak animosity they're still kind of gentle with each other underlying it and so to have that counterbalance with this like really biting wit this really no holds barred take no prisoners snark from lady whistledown is mm-hmm. a, it's, very nice. it's very nice this is okay here's here's another one that i really liked the beginning of chapter 16 the feathering tents hosted a small dinner party yesterday eve and although this author was not privileged enough to attend so great it has been said that the evening was deemed quite a success. Three Bridgertons attended, but sadly for the Featherington girls, none of the Bridgertons were of the male variety. The always amiable Nigel Burbrook was there, paying great attention to Miss Philippa Featherington. This author is told that both Benedict and Colin Bridgerton were invited, but had to send their regrets. Like, it's just... Oh, like... Like, legit, my notes are just, like, good shade, and I love Lady W so much, except I use her actual name. Yeah. Can I read to you really quickly, then? Yeah, totally. Okay, so this one is about, sh- about shade. So I have uh, in my notes, like, Lady Whistledown pulling no punches. You know, like, she's especially going after Rosamund Riley in this one, which is uh, one of Sophie's evil stepsister, and we it's very cathartic for the readers to see all this shade being thrown at her. So she says... Uh, at the beginning of chapter 14, Rosamund Ryling swears that she saw Benedict Bridgerton back in London. This author is inclined to believe the veracity of the account. Miss Ryling can spot an unmarried bachelor at 50 paces. Unfortunately for Miss Ryling, she can't seem to land one. Oh. It's one that I had that was like shade. Yeah. And then this, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I just wanted to say that she talks about uh, at the beginning of chapter 18, Pickings have been slim this past fortnight for marriage-minded misses and their mamas. The crap of ba- bachelors is low to begin with this season. As da, 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 da. And I just, 
like the idea of talking about like a like slim pickings for a crop of bachelors it's just great and oh shoot they're really struggling not to describe lady whistle down right now but my point is that there is some my point is that that there's a lot of shade <laughs> There's a lot of shade, but then you get month. Get, then you get this one, which okay. is just my favorite. It's chapter seventeen. This author has it on the finest authority that two days ago, whilst taking tea at Gunter's, Lady Penwood <laughs> was hit upon the head with a flying biscuit. This author is unable to determine who threw the biscuit, but all suspicions point to the establishment's youngest patrons, Miss Felicity Featherington and Miss Hyacinth Bridgerton. This I is after that. the the tea party where Hyacinth and Eloise are throwing scones at Bri- yeah. at Benedict. Yes, and after we know how bad Lady Penwood is, or not we, they. Um, yeah. But I I do I love that one, and it's yeah I just love it. Like oh my gosh, it must be terrifying to see Hyacinth and Felicity in the same room. And we're seeing again, we're seeing more fun. Um, we're getting like snapshots of these characters that will be important later on. Yes, that's a very good point. That and we're starting to kind of see hints of like not quite how the information is being transmitted, but a little bit of we're seeing relationships between who's being mentioned. Of course, we as the readers are like obviously they're going we're going to read the snippets of the whistle downs that have the characters that are relevant in this. So, there's some confirmation bias there, but um the, you know, some like oh, according to Eloise according to so like Mrs. Featherington's maid. So we're getting a little bit of this stuff. The other thing that's very, very important for this book in particular with Whistledown is that we're seeing a lot of the London housemaid wars. And we, at first, you can kind of just like ignore it because it's just a, a throwaway at the top of the chapter that's about some of the characters. And you think maybe it's just more context that while our characters are in Wiltshire, we're getting a little bit of context of what's going on in London. But then it really continues and you start to realize that it's something about it is important. So what they're saying is that, first of all, Lady Penwood, which is Araminta, Sophie's evil stepmom like stole away a maid from Mrs. Featherington. But then as we see it goes on, we realize the maid comes back complaining of ill treatment. And of course, we know that Airmint is used to treating Sophie that way. So it's pretty upsetting. But by the time Sophie arrives at uh, Lady Bridgerton's, Violet now knows how badly Lady Penwood has been treating her servants. So like there's an understanding of like what Lady Penwood is like by the time they face off. And as it's escalating, we're kind of, it's just very, it's very entertaining as well as it, it, eventually coming into the plot is just like filling out at the seams like like the thing with the scone or like uh what was it that lady bridgerton said like i don't like you <laughs> to lady penwood <laughs> something like that i've never liked you lady penwood <laughs> there we go thank you so it's so it's very fun but it also is really important for how sophie's treated and then this is the one that really escalates because each of the books we've read we've talked about how in the epilogue the epilogue ends with like a basically a well-bred woman in Mayfair writing the Whistledown column. And in this case, it's she sighs because the epilogue flashes to forward to 1824 and, um, and thinks she's been doing this for so very long now. Could it possibly have been 11 years already? Maybe it was time to move on. She was tired of writing about everyone else. It was time to live her own life. And so Lady Whistledown set down her quill and walked to her window, pushing aside her sage green curtains and looking out into the inky night. Time for something new, she whispered. Time to finally be me. Which is the last line in this book, and it is very clearly setting us up for the next book. It One is, imagines. And, yeah, and um, it's really exciting. Also, in the epilogue, it makes me really so... Uh, 
a big theme through this is that Sophie has is is a die hard like Lady Whistledown fan. Like yeah. she's been reading Lady Whistledown for several years. And at one point, um, in this epilogue, she go he's kind of bitching about how, you know, like, well, Lady Whistledown probably will know about, you know, this baby too. And Sophie's like, Do you realize that I've been mentioned in Whistledown two hundred and thirty two times? That stopped him cold. You've been counting? 233 if you include the time after the masquerade. I can't believe you've been counting. She gave him a nonchalant shrug. It's exciting to be mentioned. It's She's a fangirl. It's so sweet. She is a fangirl and I love it so much. And it makes me, it just makes me happy. Ultimately. And, and right before the epilogue, he says, are you looking forward to marrying me? He asked an amused voice. Or is it merely the whistle down mention that has you so excited? I had this moment that I haven't had before while reading this book, which is at the um in part one so like before the masquerade sophie is like hustling she's doing all these early morning chores and her lazy stepsisters don't even care and she is talking about she's thinking about whistledown and how she knows about the masquerade and the bridgertons and all this stuff because of whistledown and it's really fun to read and it's fun that no one knows who she is and how she knows all this stuff and she's hoping to get to read it soon because she's a a maid of all work and she doesn't get to choose her own time but she talks about how the other people in the house don't like to read and she doesn't have of course any spending power of her own and so she's read every single book in the house many times so whistledown is her only new reading material it's also her window to the outside world to the peers and i just had this moment in my head of like picturing sophie getting to sit down with lady whistledown and say when i was at my lowest reading you was like was brought joy into my life like it made me happy and that's so moving it made me think of you know the power of literature yada yada all this stuff but yeah it was really cool but then if you really stop and think about it so like in the first book lady whistledown is just kind of this gossip rag yes and then in the second book for exposition and that's basically it not basically it but that's the main driving force in the second book it's used kind of as how do i say this it's it's exposition as well but it's also kind of like a background into anthony like it's it's a little bit more character development wise in terms of like kate Kate and anthony yeah and even more than the first book whistledown seeps into the plot yes like you're like you're i think saying because yeah because kate responds to anthony based on the what she's read in whistledown and then you see how whistledown is you know, Sophie's, it is her, it's her thing. She likes reading Whistledown. She enjoys reading Whistledown. I mean, up until this point, we've had, we've heard a lot of characters complain about Whistledown. We haven't had somebody who's actually like, I'm trying to get my hands on Whistledown. Oh, no, because the first, the very first chapter, that was Daphne grabbing it. And then, and then in the second book, Kate was like, she reads it religiously. So I, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's different for Sophie. I think it's like the equivalent of it's what the sky Sophie. looks like to someone in a prison versus what the sky looks like to someone who has freedom. I don't know. Yes. I mean, that's a bit that's a good, No, I don't no, think that's it's dramatic. That's a good way. Yeah. So it's, it's really sweet to see, um, but it also ends up being vital because it gives Sophie the information she needs to be able to kind of walk with these people or to know enough and then to hold her head up. And then it, gives benedict a chance to sort of try to figure out what's going on like he knows he's he's like this mysterious woman knows me from whistledown she's been in london this long and so it's, it's kind of an interesting yeah yeah no it's 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 also a way for him to do some amateur detective work 
Yeah. And when I say amateur detective work, it gets him nowhere. Yeah. He's real bad at it. Veronica Mars could definitely, definitely do better than Benedict on any day. Can I make a, can I, can I make a confession? You've never seen Veronica Mars. Nope. That's okay. (laughs) It's dated. I would like, yeah, I have, I have thoughts. I have watched it so many times. It's so good. Uh, I I would like to watch it. That being said, Mm -hmm. I have, I have heard. Yeah. Many people be very unhappy yeah. with yeah. the newest season of yes. it. I have not seen the newest season for that reason. Well, that reason and that I didn't have access to it for a while. Well, that kind of makes me be like, why do I want to watch this if I know what happens? <laughs> uh, I would say the last season, I don't even know what happens, but it's like a lot different. So I, I, I know what happens to like a specific character. Okay. And um, here's, here's the thing, yeah. though. I think there's a lot of other reasons why not to watch it. <laughs> but um, but I'm glad that I did. So anyway, my point is, yeah, he's not a detective. Actually, you know who would be good detectives? Obviously, Violet and especially Eloise. Yes. So this is also the first time that, at least that I can recall, that the idea, the theory, that Lady Whistledown is a Bridgerton gets floated. Possibly yeah. it was mentioned in the first book or something, but I don't think so. This is Benedict himself brings it up. He says, you know, some people think it might be a Bridgerton. It's not, not because we're not smart enough to be Lady Whistledown. We are, but because one of us would be smart enough to figure it out. Yes. And so that's not at all a big deal. It's just sort of mentioned. It's a bit amusing. It says a bit about the Bridgertons. In the next book, that will be a pretty massive big deal. It is not now. Yeah. 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 I agree. So should we talk some tropes? Yes. Let's talk tropes. So name your like main flashing the lights trope of this book, Lydia. Cinderella. I love fairy tale trope. a good fairy tale adaptation. In fact, that is what I have built a small portion of my life upon. And I love, I love, you know, yeah, Cinderella trope. And, and this is an excellent fairy tale adaptation. Yes, absolutely. Functions so well. So here's something that I love. I was looking at it. So I was talked about it being a very romantic book. There's the very short part one is like peak romance. It's like what you'd expect to see in like the end of a movie or something, you know, candlelight, silks, like a deep soul connection, just like a beautiful dancing, like a, a very like there's stars out, you know, like even if there aren't, there probably are. Right. So all of this beauty, but it is very short and it's. It's this beautiful, like, Benedict is thinking, my life has changed. Like, this is the moment. Sophie's thinking, this is amazing. This night is amazing. I can almost pretend that my life has changed and that it tomorrow won't be life as usual. And so then the rest of the book is not that perfect fairy tale magical romance. And I no. think that's why it works so well, because it isn't sappy. It isn't overly sentimental. And it's that one perfect night that then is part of their dreams for the rest of the book and nothing can ever match up to it because that's not you know that's how life is sometimes we have these amazing special moments that we know don't last and they're partly so special because we know they won't last and i think to have this fairy tale trope and to have all of the like beauty at the beginning and then like sort of the mundane day-to-day difficult decisions of life after that that like there's this sort of magical night that doesn't have that has yeah really impacts them but isn't part of their lives is really interesting and also like the shoes and the glove right so we know that in cinderella 
Cinderella leaves her glass slipper behind. And never mind that that sounds incredibly dangerous to put your shoes in something made of glass or your feet in something made of glass. Uh, we all go with it, right? And then the shoe is used to find the wannabe, the princess hidden in the schoolery maid and then happily ever after. The shoe brings happily ever after. In this one, the, she leaves her glove behind and it sort of helps, but he's, again, not a detective of any kind, so it doesn't really help. <laughs> and it kind of gets her in trouble. But the shoes get her in trouble. And they get her kicked out and cast out in the first part. In the second part, the shoe clips get her thrown in jail. So it's kind of interesting that this sort of symbol of romance only gets her into more trouble. Mm-hmm. So so I think there's a, like a little bit of a... It, the Cinderella trope is done so well, but like... The romance is subverted a bit in ways that make it so much more satisfying than some kind yes. of suspended, sparkly, like spooning romance. If, it, if that was the whole book, no, I, I 100% agree. Um, which is why I make like the, the that's why I made the connection to like Ever After, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's another one where it doesn't all revolve around like the one night. Like there are multiple things that happen in between the first meeting and that ever after mm-hmm. yeah so. so i think again and partly i think why it works so well is so we have this really intense love at first sight which is another trope i think of this book um it's yes. a very charged connection immediately but the reason that works so well and doesn't come across as like like cheesy or insta love or like oh you expect me to believe that is because this book is also kind of a second chance romance because yes. they have this instant intense connection and then they don't see each other for two years and when they meet up again they fall in love again but this time it's like sort of the proper way or like the slower way the getting to know each other way the like really appreciating the comfort and contentment of being in one another's presence and i love that it builds yeah. so well and it, it it makes for a great story because she knows who yeah. he is he doesn't know who she is yeah which is this really interesting juxtaposition where, you know, you get this these two sides to this story where mm-hmm. you're hearing Benedict go, oh, you know, I'm really liking Sophie, but what if that other woman comes back? Yeah. And Sophie's like, I'm here, but like, yeah. I can't tell you. Yeah. Because you, it's not done. You cannot marry somebody like me. Mm-hmm. So that's why the final trope is hidden identity. Yeah, which I—that's one of my favorite tropes in a romance novel. And it's—it's it's, I don't know what it is, but there's something that's so fun about the tension of like she knows but he doesn't. There's this big yeah. difference, and it kind of I guess a little bit like evens the playing field for some of the power dynamics of he has all this like wealth and privilege and power, but he doesn't have this knowledge, mm-hmm. and she is like quite desperate, but she has she knows something he doesn't, and it's not something she wants to hold over him. But it does end up having this interesting effect between them. Yeah. So should we talk a little bit about Benedict and Sophie's characters? Yes, we really do need to. I wanted to say a little something about the hidden... Oh, sorry. Yeah. So so with the hidden identity and also this, what I was kind of rambling about with um, the subver- subversion of romance, I-, I thought that was also nice. So we have this, like again, like absolutely beautiful scene with them in the moonlight and dancing together and what they consider like a basically like a spiritual connection. And yes. it's absolute. It's just beautiful. Like it. It's just is. And then flash forward two years, we open it up, and like she's at a bad place. He's grumpy because he hasn't found his his like special woman in silver. And she sees him coming to her rescue. His her prince charming for the first time in two years. She's been dreaming about him, and he appears when she needs him the most. And she just sort of 
dumbly stands there and stares at his face and is like, this is it. Like, he's going to recognize me. Like, what's he going to say? And he doesn't recognize her. And that's what we've been sort of conditioned to believe is like the big romantic, like our love is so complete that anywhere, anytime I'll recognize you and blah, blah, blah. Like our souls have touched. And never mind that, as she points out, they knew each other for an hour and a half. He saw half her face. She looked different then. And so the fact that he then doesn't recognize her is this kind of great like slap in the face to romance of saying like, yeah, this is real life. I mean, it's a book, but you know, this is real life. And uh, he doesn't recognize her. She's not who he was expecting. And as she points out, we see what we expect to see. And he sees a housemaid. Yeah. He doesn't look at the housemaid and say, drop to his knees and, and like grab her hands and say, you're my one true love. And I, that's great. Right. It is great. And the thing, the thing that I really like about all of that is that you get hints of like, Colin saying, I think we've met. Yeah. And she's like, I no, no, we couldn't have. And he's like, No, no, I feel like we did. Or like Lady Vi going, You look really familiar. Mm-hmm. Penelope saying, We've definitely met. I never forget a face. Penelope saying that, but then Lady Vi also says, You look really familiar. It's because she knew mm-hmm. Sophie's aunt. Yeah. And so we do get hints of this, and it's like her insides are like terrified that they're going to find her secret, but like ultimately she also again realizes she's the help. Like, yeah. Well, it's an interesting, the hidden identity thing is interesting because she can't quite articulate why once he doesn't recognize her, she doesn't say something. But it sort of boils down to like a bunch of different reasons. This, yeah, this like fear that he'll, he'll recognize her and it'll ruin both of their memories. Like that she's been, She's been having a really hard time the last two years, and she's been carrying that night, that moment, as this dream, as this fantasy, as, like, he's, like, her fantasy man. This this place where she can kind of go to escape in her own head of, like, we could have a happily ever after. We could have a family. And she doesn't want to burst that bubble. She doesn't want to see his face, but he realizes that this glamorous woman who, at this point, she's like, maybe he doesn't, maybe it didn't mean the same thing to him that it meant to me that night. But she doesn't want to see his face when he realizes that she's just a housemaid. And especially she doesn't want him to say, I still think you're hot. Be my mistress. Because it's a big, it's a really big deal personally for her that she could never be a man's mistress. And that'll that'll be something that we talk about. Yes. Which is a good segue into the character of Sophie Beckett. Sophia Maria yeah. Beckett, bastard of the Earl of Penwood. And yeah. uh, typical Julia Quinn coming out of the gate. First sentence in the book. Everyone knew that Sophia Beckett was a bastard. Is there a more perfect sentence to start this book? No. So great. It's so great. Yeah. And um, that has left an impression on her. It's left an impression and it's left a deep hurt in Sophie. She's starved for love and she's cast adrift between social classes. So she, Mm -hmm. in the most fundamental way, Sophie does not and has never belonged. No. To anyone. No. And, you know, she said... She was raised by the servants Mm -hmm. and, you know, they loved her. But again, it was never this like, again, it's the in-betweenness of all of it. And I think even more than love, they pitied her and they knew she was the Earl's bastard, but no one acknowledged it. No one acknowledges that she's in this in-between place, even though she knows it until the Countess comes in uh, and becomes her stepmom and marries the Earl. And up until then, no one said it to her face. So the servants even, like, keep things from her. And I like how Julia Quinn describes the servants. She talks about, like, the way that Sophie finds out she's going to get a stepmom and two stepsisters is because it's something like, oh, it's this this one, sorry, wonderful, like, train of servants. It's 
the housekeeper had said, that the butler had said, that the Earl's secretary had said, that the Earl planned to spend more time at Penwood Park now that he would be a family man. And uh, I just, like, that chain of servants just says so much about that's the only people who she's surrounded by. That's how she gets her information. That's mm-hmm. her world. Yeah. No, I agree. I made a lot of mm. connections between Sophie and Simon. Yeah. Their stories are very similar, except that she is a woman and she is a bastard mm-hmm. versus the son of a duke. Yeah. But it's very similar. They are both people who've not experienced love in their life. Yeah. And they are both people who have who have very deeply held thoughts and um they are both very vehement about what they do and do not want to do. Yeah, especially in regards to children. In, yeah, in, especially um and in, in yeah, you know, Simon didn't want to get married to Daphne because he didn't want to make her unhappy because he knew he would never have children where you have kind of the same kind of persistence that we see that with Benedict continuously asking Sophie to be his mistress when she's like, I don't want to be a mistress. I will not be a mistress. Mm-hmm. I will not put a child into the same place that I was yeah. put. And it's very, it's very powerful. It is. Especially when you watch her, you watch her waver with that decision. Yeah. Like over and over again as the book continues. And I mean, it's a little infuriating that yeah. Benedict keeps, yeah. keeps asking and asking and asking. And she, I mean, she even kind of says, why do you keep? Yeah. I'm not going to change my mind. And then, you know, the one time she slips up and they do and they make love, you see, he he's he's already like, oh, this is going to happen. And she's like, hold your horses. Yeah. No, it's not. That That's, was a mistake. This doesn't mean I'm going to become your mistress. It's not the same thing. And then yeah. he goes, well, yeah. what if you're already pregnant? And she goes, and that's already eating away at me. Yeah. This character is just, you feel so bad for her. Yeah. And then... In amongst all of this, she is jealous of herself. Yeah, because he's pining, Benedict's pining after the lady in silver, the mysterious woman from the masquerade, who is, of course, in the Cinderella trope, Sophie Beckett. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she, um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because, like you were saying, this is, like, a foundational principle for Sophie as a person. That, mm-hmm. like, she even has this moment where she's like, I, I would actually love to be Anthony's, or sorry, Benedict's mistress because he's wonderful and being with him would be wonderful. But, like, it's not about me. I'm not so stupid to think that, like, that would happen and then I would, we would never have children and I will not have my children be bastards. And th- she makes it so clear that this is, like, a foundational, fundamental principle for her. And P- Benedict says over and over again, like, how much he admires her and loves her for her principles. But he keeps trying to tear them away from her and he refuses to understand why her perspective matters. Like he he just thinks that she's putting up roadblocks against true love and that she's just not looking at solutions. When in reality, she's like, love isn't everything. Passion isn't everything. I have a responsibility and I have to make difficult choices because I don't have the privilege that you do. And it's not the same thing. Yeah, no, it, it, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. So my my notes for this, there's a lot of just, oh boy. Yeah. Jesus Christ. And Benedict, you're a dummy. It's It, it gets really frustrating. Yeah. I think even more so, like Anthony frustrates me like on a different level, but like the continued persistence Yeah. after she has said no. Yeah. 
and I mean he he eventually we'll, we'll talk a little bit when we talk about him yeah. but he eventually comes around and realizes he he that he is a dum-dum but it's very frustrating to watch him pursue Sophie in this way and yeah. not respect her wishes it is that is one of the most frustrating aspects of the book for me yeah um yeah. because again she's she continuously points out his privilege to him both as a man and as somebody who is wealthy and legitimate and has a very high standing in society yes all of those things together yes and then we see it even more so um like in his interactions with his family like the interaction i read that was my out of context line that we do see that as a wealthy man he got to go to eton and to Mm -hmm. cambridge that is not the case for eloise who clearly has a very brilliant mind but will never get to use that in an academic setting yeah because she is a woman but he doesn't he's like yeah yeah i know but he doesn't really understand or think about it. He doesn't need to think about it. No. That's And that's what privilege is, frankly, is that yes. he doesn't need to think about it. He can choose to think about it and he can choose to opt out of thinking about it. And that's what he's chosen. And Sophie is consistently reminding him being like, mm-hmm. this isn't something that you worry about. Yeah. You know, and I I like that about her character is that and it's, it's not just him that she calls it out with. Yeah. She calls it out with lady vi she calls it out with hyacinth she calls it out with all these characters and it makes them uncomfortable which is a good thing yeah she's really good about that even i'd say mrs crabtree but um here's the thing is benedict is to me he's of all the like male hero heroes that we've read so far he's like the least of the like overbearing grumpy arrogant all of those things like the kind of stuff that i'm not really (laughs) a fan of in a guy and he's he's a lot more mellow i guess i don't know that's not really the word but he he's really he's a great person like he's someone you'd want to spend time with and he has all these great qualities and he's kind of lovely with soapy but the moment that this conflict comes up he just doesn't listen he very aggressively doesn't listen and like you said he keeps ignoring her choices her saying no and like he he also just refuses to engage with her like on an intellectual level like, whenever she ex- tries to explain mm-hmm. why this isn't okay with her, he just is like, you're being an idiot, basically. And he just refuses to even entertain the idea that she might have a valid reason. And I think, as it makes clear in the text, uh, Benedict hasn't ever had anyone say no to him. And this is something, she is something, that he wants very much. And so part of it is he doesn't want to listen to her legitimate arguments or he doesn't want to consider whether or not her arguments are legitimate because it would mean denying him something. And I know this makes him sound really petty. It, it, he is. But like, it's really interesting to me because this is like his almost his only like real like flaw in this book is like the entire middle section where he's awful <laughs> to Sophie in, in this and it's you're right. It, it almost makes it more frustrating to read because Anthony is just gen- generally overbearing and arrogant and supercilious, but like Benedict isn't. And so seeing him digging in his heels and like not treating Sophie well, when you know that he's like a great guy, is even more frustrating. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't care how tall and handsome and like debonair you are, like stop being a dick. So it's interesting. <laughs> so I guess now we can kind of yeah. we can go into talking about Benedict more. And so uh, we've talked about Sophie being a bastard. Benedict is son number two. He is the the second Bridgerton or number two, the one that starts with the B. Like he's kind of just forgotten about because he also has these two magnanimous people on either side of him who are outspoken and loud and grumpy within his own household. 
Yeah, he he, you know he what loves I mean? being a Bridgerton. He loves his family, but he is one of many. And he's instantly recognizable from his facial features yes. on the outside. People who don't know him very well as a Bridgerton, a Bridgerton. And inside the family, it's easy to get drowned out because there's so many big personalities. And so he's not the middle child, but exactly. he definitely so, kind of fades into the wallpaper a bit like a middle child might. I would say I would consider him to be a middle child in the sense that he is the mm-hmm. middle of the three older brothers. And I'm sure, you know, well, and like he even says, you know, Anthony, when their father died, Anthony had this huge responsibility placed on him that he did not have. Yeah, Sophie points that out. Yeah, Sophie points that out to him. Quite, quite a beautiful It's just like a total moment. random aside. Also, this is the first book that we don't see Anthony in. Yeah, we hear about him. We don't actually We hear see about him. him, but we don't actually interact with him, which I, I kind of like. Lydia was just book devastated. No she opens the book. She just throws it against the wall. It's like, Anthony is not in this book. It was very upsetting for the book, for the wall, for the e-reader. Um, as I'm sure all of you know. Oh, it was so, <laughs> such a joy to leave Anthony behind for a yeah. book. Um, yeah, so so sure. we kind of get hints of this from the whistle-down columns at the beginning of the book in particular of like, oh, blah, 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 Bridgerton's. And then we kind of see in the masquerade that all these people are coming out to Bridgerton, uh, Benedict being like, oh, you're one of the Bridgertons. You're number two. You're number three. And he loves that he's really taken aback, but he loves that Sophie doesn't instantly recognize him. And then yes. when she does realize that he's one of the Bridgertons, she doesn't like, you're one of the Bridgertons. She's kind of embarrassed and says like, well... I can tell you're Benedict because of I've read a lot of Lady Whistledown, but like I'm not special. Anyone who's read Lady Whistledown would know that and very clearly wants to know him for him. And it's like it's the first time that's happened for him. But he doesn't. Yeah. And it, he doesn't sulk about this ever. That's the thing is he's never like that annoying kid in the corner being like, you don't pay attention to me. It just kind of hurts him that he doesn't get to be seen as an individual. Yeah. He, he blends mm-hmm. in. He blends into the lineup. Yeah. We learn that he is actually like a really lovely artist. Yes. And I also like that he's never the only person he's shown his art to at this point is Sophie. It's really beautiful. It's this really great scene. I really love the scene when they are talking about what Benedict is good at at tea Mm -hmm. and none of his siblings can really say what he's good at. And Sophie's like, he's good at art. He's an amazing artist. And they're like, did you guys know this? I didn't know this. Did you know this, mom? Did they? And it's this, I almost kind of feel like Lady Vi is almost ashamed that she doesn't know this about her son. And a little bit hurt, I think. Very, very sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I I think she is much more like looking to find him, willing to help him find happiness Mm -hmm. in this book. Oh, yeah. She goes above and beyond. You know, I think she just wants him to be happy. Yeah. And I think all of his siblings want him to be happy, but I just think there's a there's a different bond. There she interacts differently with Benedict yeah. than yeah. she does any of her other children, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um yeah. it's very much more uh I don't even know what how to describe that relationship because and maybe it's because when she had Benedict, you know, Anthony, this is her second child. Yeah. Anthony was very close to his father. Yeah. So she had this ability to bond with this baby because Edmund was always looking after mm-hmm. Anthony. And he's very sensitive. So I think he, he, is very he can sensitive. have these interactions with his mother that are a little bit, yeah, different in tone than the other kids. Yes. I do like that at every ball. At the beginning, she says, you know, I want you to dance with Penelope Featherington. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, she gets him to do things that he may grumble about, but he does them because he loves his mother. 
Yeah, they all do. But like, yeah, you really see it in this one with with Benedict. Well, which one is it? There is another one where like he shows up. I think it's I think it's book number one. And he says something to Colin to the effect of like, you walked away. So I had to dance with Penelope Featherington. No, I think you're thinking of, sorry, are you not thinking of when Colin comes up to Benedict at the masquerade and says, what is wrong with you? You just walked away from poor Penelope and then I had to dance with her. Oh, maybe that's Because they do talk about dancing remember. with her in the first one. But I think, that, I think that's what you're thinking of. In every one of their conversations, though, there is a conversation in that first book, though, where yeah, there is. Somebody, yeah. says to, somebody says to Benedict or Colin, I can't remember, but they talk about how their mother wants them to dance with Penelope Featherington. Yeah. Um, so this, I have, I'm annoyed at myself because I didn't take enough notes because I wanted to find something specifically, but I wanted to talk about Benedict being an artist and, and Whistledown and Sophie. So she, when Sophie first sees Benedict's sketches, which are really lovely, and there's this great one of like, I think it's Daphne playing Paul Mall, <laughs> whoever it is, it's one of the it's sisters. Like, it's a bunch of them. It's, it's a bunch of them, of them playing, playing Paul Mall. Yeah, but there's specifically yeah. one girl whose like face is screwed up in concentration. And to me, that's Daphne. But anyway, so she says um, she'd never dreamed that Benedict was an artist. There'd never even been a peep about it in Whistledown. And it seemed like the sort of thing the gossip columnist would have figured out over the years. And I can't find the perfect quote, but later on when Benedict kind of comes to Sophie for assurance that there is something unique and individual about him, that he's not just one of the Bridgertons, that he's his own person, that he matters. She talks about how amazing his art is. And she thinks to herself, Lady Whistledown must have never really gotten to know Benedict because if all she could talk about was how tall he was and how handsome, you know, that's nothing. You know, there's so much to him. And that, and that I think, says a lot about Lady Whistledown, but it also is just, just the beauty of, like, two people getting to know each other very well on a deeper level. And indeed, deeper than his family, who loves him, but does overlook him as an individual in some ways. And at this point, oh, how do I say this without going too yeah. much into the next book? You know what I'm trying to say, though, yeah. right? Like, we, we'll have a at the plot. point in that when that, that first meeting between Benedict and Sophie, at that point, Lady Whistletown is just starting out. She's been around for maybe like two, one or two yeah, years. I believe it's two years. Yeah, because it was, she started in 1813 and it's 1815 when it starts out. Then we flash forward to 1817. Yes. Yes. So by the time 1817 rolls around, Lady Whistledown has been going for four years. And still doesn't have anything closer about Benedict. Not really, but at this point now, we are getting more intricate details about the family in general. So, and we, but that's the other thing, is we don't see what happens in those two years between with Lady Whistledown. So she could be writing about Benedict. No, because Sophie... We just don't no, know it as the reader. Sophie specifically says that she's been trying to read as much Whistledown as she could in the last two years, and that that comes later. So I that's that's what I think. Because all this stuff about both of those... The quote I read and then the quote I couldn't find but talked about, those are both in part two in 1817. So to me, yes, she could have been writing in those two years and Sophie might not have seen them, but I think we're supposed to take it as she writes about Benedict as on the surface as she writes about Colin as we'll find out in the next book which is like we know that Colin travels we know that Benedict is tall we know that like you know not not that much she writes about about them a lot but she doesn't write anything about their personalities that's my take I think that this might be a good time to give a little toodaloo to our listeners or not because that's really weird Um, and then pick up and talk about like really delve into themes and uh, some goodies in the next episode. What do you think? Part two. That's fine. We've talked a lot about family in this first Yeah, one. which is, of course, a theme in all of these books and just seems especially present in this one. Um, 
Sophie explicitly says that the thing that she most desperately longs for in the whole world is family, is a family. And again, it's just, I'll have more to talk about this next time, but it's another really lovely subversion of of romance in such a romantic book is that she's not looking for her one true love. It's not that she doesn't care about that. She does. It's that she wants a family. She wants to belong. And she wants that so fiercely. And she does not think that she'll ever get it. No. No, I agree. (sighs) Um, Yeah, I think that's a great place to (laughs) pause kind of cut it off and then we can talk class privilege and consent tomorrow. absolutely we have uh in case anyone's interested in you know watching and listening to part two which you better be is uh we have a lot of interesting things that we haven't even covered yet and you will never know them if you don't listen um but for now hey lydia what are you reading i have finished polaris rising Ooh. finally i highly recommend it lady or reader listeners ladies listeners whatever people that listen to this Folks podcast i highly recommend well. polaris rising yeah. and i have now started uh pride and oh is it pride prejudice uh, and other yes. flavors have or? you really yes oh, i'm really happy i'm like three pages okay. in. <laughs> so this is by sonali dev Yes, by Sonali Dave. I've read I've read all of a couple of her other Bollywood mm-hmm. books, and so I'm really excited. I enjoyed those, but I'm really excited for this one because these have gotten some really rave reviews. Yes. So I'm really <sighs> excited, and it's a retelling of Austin, it is. and it's a gender bent retelling yes. of Austin where uh, the Darcy character is actually a lady. I'm a doctor. I'm into doctor. it, and the Elizabeth character is a yeah. dude. This is um, it's one of my favorite adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. And and it's very different in tone from the Bollywood ones. It's like a little bit less weepy. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is sometimes a plus. And I mean, my friends who are listeners will know <laughs> that one of my all-time favorite movies is um, <laughs> Bride and Prejudice, which is Gorinda Chadha's um, Pride and Prejudice retelling. Bollywood retelling. Her modernized Bollywood Pride retelling. and Prejudice. Well, yeah, Bollywood esque. I have a hard time. It's Bollywood esque. Yeah. It's I I can't say that it's Bollywood because it's, it's really yeah, not. That's true. Um, but it's a Bollywood esque retelling of Pride and Prejudice, and I love that. So I'm I'm excited to see a different, re- another reinterpretation. Yeah, with Indian Americans of Indian Americans yeah. and uh, living here. Yeah, I love that. I would never have watched it if it wasn't for you, and I I'm so glad that I have. Okay, so it sounds like you've been having a really good reading experience then. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited and to continue yeah. on. So I have been uh, submerging myself face first in Nalini Singh's Sai Changeling series. Recommend, or yeah, really found by Lydia. And I was like, you were like, oh, let's put Slave to Sensation on our book list. And I was like, huh, why are there so many books by this author I've never heard of? I have definitely heard of her a lot now. This is me in November going, huh? And then like read all of her Rockstar books, <laughs> then restrained myself. And then once it, it kind of came up on the roster, like read the first book. And then I went kind of insane and just like read so many of the others. Uh, so yeah, that's a thing. And then uh, Boyfriend Material by Alexis Hall just came out and I like immediately had to read it. It is basically like a queer Notting Hill. I'm into yeah, it. So if anyone likes rom-coms, which let's face it, you're listening to this. Yes. Like the snarky British humor in this off the charts. And then finally, this is not a romance, but there is some romance in it. Uh, I just really loved The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid, the one who, the author of Daisy Jones and the Six. 
it was really good. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of, it's a love story. It's not a romance. There's not really an HEA, but I would still very strongly recommend it. Kind of like a Cuban-American actress in the golden age of Hollywood. And there's like a lot of like queer threads and a lot of like different twists and turns throughout. So I've had a fun reading experience lately, uh, as you can tell. One that's maybe a little bit bonkers. Hey, listeners, tell us about your favorite character from the first three books. I will put a post up on our socials. Go and check them out and let us know who your favorite hero or heroine or any character really from the first three books is and tell us why. So yeah, check out our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and on the Twitter, and we will be there. Yeah, uh, let us know and then we'll we'll discuss it when we go to talk about Penelope's yes. book, book four. Thanks for listening to Calling Cards Podcast, part two of an offer from a gentleman. That's right. The same book is coming in two weeks. So please get your masks of all kinds ready. Please rate and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Calling Cards Pod, on Twitter at Cards Calling, on our website, callingcards.wixsite.com slash callingcardspod, or by emailing us at callingcardspod at gmail.com. Original music by PastaCat. Find out more by following at PastaCat Music on Instagram. Also, I do. I would also like to say one other thing for this podcast. Tay and I have been doing uh, all the pictures ourselves. Tay's done some. I've done some. I would also like to uh, give a shout out to our friend Sarah, who has been uh, doing all of our some of our in between artworks that you'll see next week. That we've already posted a couple times. Yeah, and oh, that's true. Yeah, and uh, yeah, super appreciative. How cool is that? Yeah, and she's been very wonderful. So we very much appreciate the work that she's doing. So I, I just want to give her a shout out as well. Sarah's not on the social media, so that's why I'm just saying that. Next week, you're going to get to hear uh, about the 10th Kingdom, Princess Bride, and other things that are not relevant to the Bridgertons. You are welcome. And then the week after that, we'll be back with an offer from a gentleman. Part two, The Reckoning. Yes, thank you. I was like, wait a second, what? I'm a little behind. Aren't We're we good. <laughs>